back and thank you, worship team. Great, great time in the Word. So, good morning, uh, church. It's a great pleasure and honour to always be here every Sunday morning with you all, and, um, and it's a great privilege to bring the Word of God this morning. So, uh, I want to thank Pastor Mark for inviting me to preach. It, it's always an honour. Uh, well, Lord, we just uh, thank you for this time, God. You are an awesome God. Uh, words can't describe how good you are. And just invite you, Holy Spirit, to minister to us now through your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, uh, friends, recently I've been uh, reading through the Gospels again, and it's, um, you know, it's amazing um, when you read the words of Jesus, what he did, who he is, um, what stands out more than anything else about him is just the compassion and love that flows through him towards people, his value for people, you know, drives everything that he does. And, um, and I just want to, um, uh, today's message, I want to preach about that, you know, we're going to look at the compassion of Jesus And that's the title of this message. So this morning we're going to look at the compassion of Jesus, just some of the very many examples of it. We're going to look at how the compassion of Jesus, that example, has influenced the lives of Christian believers who follow him throughout the ages and how they have transformed the world. And uh, uh, finally, we'll look at how we can foster that character, that disposition of compassion, of Christ-like compassion in our lives. So that's what we're going to look at. So we'll get straight into it. Uh, I have a scripture here to begin with. We're going to read just three scriptures out of very many that show the compassionate love of Jesus for other people. So the first one is in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. It says, When he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. You know, I love this. And, um, you know, we know from, you know, most of us probably growing up around church, we've heard many sermons, we're familiar with the fact that leprosy was a terrible disease. It was a disease that made someone unclean and ostracized them from mainstream society, you know, and um, they, they definitely didn't get touches or hugs from people. Imagine living months, decades perhaps of your life without ever being touched by a person. It's terrible, isn't it? It's a basic human need that this man didn't have. In the natural, it seems like Jesus and this man didn't know each other. He was a stranger to Jesus in that sense. Uh, and yet he comes a man full of leprosy. You know, maybe he's been like that. Who knows? 10 years, 20 years, we don't know. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I love Jesus' response that just flows out of him. Before Jesus even speaks a word to him, he reaches out and he touches the man. You know, he shows that love to the man that he wouldn't have experienced maybe for many years because he is showing the man that he matters, you know, that Jesus loves him despite his sickness that's still on him. Jesus is going to touch him and embrace him. And then he says, I am willing. I I will be clean. And immediately the man was healed. I just love that. I just think that encapsulates who Jesus is, you know, his love for people. And, um, you know, leprosy set people aside from others. They couldn't be part of society. They were not good enough to be accepted by society. And maybe sometimes we can feel like that. You know, in our heart of hearts, we can wonder at times, am I good enough? You know, I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm rejected. Does Society doesn't think much of me. Jesus, do you think much of me? And Jesus says, I do. I do. You know, and he includes us and he shows us his love. The next scripture is in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. It says... Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. 
and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when, he, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. It's awesome, isn't it? So there's this woman. Jesus happens to be there when our funeral procession is happening. The lady's lost her husband, and now she's lost her only son. And when Jesus sees the weeping and the sorrow of this situation, it says that his heart just goes out to the lady. He's filled with compassion for her, and he goes and raises her son from the dead. And people come to see that God has visited them. And I just love seeing that heart of Jesus toward the need of this lady. And just the fact that he could raise the dead, I mean, that's powerful. That's a whole sermon in itself about the power of Jesus over death. And, um, but, you know, God always does things for a reason. And he did this to show his compassion. One thing I say to my kids about the miracles of Jesus is that they're not magic tricks. You know, this isn't some wizard doing amazing things. You know, that's not what, who Jesus is. God does miracles. They're interventions, real interventions of God in human life to show us something of him, yeah. to draw people to himself. There's a purpose behind his miracles. And it was to show people his heart of compassion and his power over death. Luke chapter 4, verse 40. It says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases, all those who had, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on them, on every one of them, and healed them. Again, we see, you know, the sun is setting. That's time to have your last supper for the day and uh, get ready for bed and go to sleep, right? That's the time of day. But then everyone who was sick came to him. And so this means, you know, I mean, it, one, again, just the power of Jesus to heal is amazing. But the fact that he made time to heal, he laid hands on every single person that was brought to him. Who knows? I don't know whether there was a dozen or whether there was a thousand that came to him. We don't know in this particular instance. But he took the time as the sun was setting. This is time to rest, to, to go to bed. But he doesn't care. That doesn't matter. It's people who matter to Jesus. And, um, and so we could see continually so many other examples. In John chapter 3, Jesus makes time for a Pharisee who's searching for the truth. Nicodemus comes to him at night and Jesus spends time with him. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50, a self-righteous Pharisee, a man who wasn't a particularly nice person, invites Jesus for dinner. Jesus even makes time for him. He goes to his house. But at his house, Jesus teaches him a lesson as well. Because a sinful woman, a woman who was known simply as a sinful woman, came to that Pharisee's house and she wept. She was touched by Jesus. She wept on his feet and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And the Pharisee was appalled at this. He was disgusted to see that Jesus would let such a woman near him. But Jesus did. You know, and he dignified that woman. He forgave her sin and he said, wherever the gospel is preached, her story will be told. So at the Pharisee's house, he shows compassion to this lady and by that, he shows compassion to this Pharisee to give, an, give him an opportunity to see God's love. In Mark 10, people are sending kids away from Jesus. And Jesus says, no, let them come to me. He makes time for them. In Mark chapter 10, he also meets a, that rich young ruler who was led astray by his love for riches. But the Bible says when Jesus saw that young ruler, a rich man, he had compassion on him. He loved him. Um, he had compassion and love for tax collectors. In Luke 5, he called Levi, a tax collector, doing the work of the Romans. And yet Jesus says, come and follow me. He becomes a disciple of Jesus and is transformed. Luke 19, he calls Zacchaeus, a man hated by everyone. Yet Jesus goes to his house for dinner. And so the list could go on. You know, the demon possessed, Simon's mother-in-law and others. Jesus was 
filled with compassion. That was his disposition. That's just who he was. You know, this is the God that we serve. And we see this character of God even throughout all of the Old Testament as well. You know, even when God brought judgment for sin, he wasn't delighting in judgment. Ezekiel says that God takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked. He's waiting to be merciful instead. And even his judgment comes from a place of mercy. You know, any of us, if we see horrific things done by people, we want justice to be done to the perpetrators. We know that that's actually a right thing. So even God's judgment, making things right, comes from a place of mercy and justice. Psalm 86, verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 145, verses 8 to 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Isaiah 30, verse 18 And I love this scripture because um, if you read chapter 29 and 30, uh, this scripture is actually in a longer passage where God is actually talking about a judgment that's about to come on Jerusalem because for centuries they've been rejecting God's word, they've been oppressing the poor, killing the innocent, and and living in ungodliness, even though he's been calling them. So judgment is coming to Jerusalem. And yet in that same passage, God says this, Isaiah 30 verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Our God is a God of justice and mercy. You know, he's a compassionate God. And that's awesome. You know, it's, there's so much comfort in that. And it's a beautiful thing. And you know, this God of mercy and grace, of compassion, he calls us as his children, as followers of Jesus Christ, to also be a people of mercy the people of his compassion, not the world's compassion, not, not the way the world sees doing good, but his real compassion, his real mercy. In our life group, we've been uh, going through over the last couple of months the, the Beatitudes and just taking each time we meet just to do a study on one of the Beatitudes. And um, they're at the opening of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus speaks this Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And, you know, the Beatitudes really describe the character of the people who make up God's kingdom, right? And it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the word mercy that is used here comes from the Greek word, and I'm going to mispronounce it because I'm no Greek scholar, is eleamon, eleamon, which means compassionate actively. So mercy in a biblical sense, in a Christ-like sense, is essentially compassion in action. Compassion in action. That's where compassion and mercy go together. Is compassion in action. And this is what God calls us to. In Luke chapter 6, verse 32 to 36, Jesus called us to this. He says in that scripture, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So, you know, the world admires people who do good, and and we should. People who are kind, and we should. You know, who lend to those who are in need. There are admirable things. But Jesus says, they're admirable things, but they're nothing special. Anyone can do those. And and, and good people do those. It doesn't matter. But but it does matter, sorry, but but it's it's not terribly impressive. But God's love goes far beyond that. And in verse 35, he says, 
but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the, and the evil. This is our God. You know, it's amazing. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So our example of mercy for you and for me as Christians is our Father, is our God. Not the kindness, not the mercy that will be praised by the world, but is the mercy of God our Father and of Jesus Christ. Um, love your enemies. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? And, and as Christians, we're familiar with that term, but it's a pretty big deal. And when the rubber hits the road, even for us as Christians, it's a pretty big deal. Because when we move, leave the church service today and you get that text message or that, you know, Facebook post you see from a really annoying relative, you know, like, oh, they're at it again. Will they ever get it, you know? Or um, you go to work tomorrow and that person has been gossiping about you, trying to undermine you. You go to school and someone's calling your names. Love your enemies. Right. Compassion in action for them. How's that, you know? And that's what Jesus calls us to do, is the people who are in any way our enemy, to show them compassion in action. You know, it would be us going, doing something for those people that truly blesses them, not out of spite, not hoping that they feel bad about it, but truly just to bless them. And even doing it anonymously so they never knew it was you. That's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. You know, over the years, um, uh, I've heard advice, like many of you have things like, you know, even from Christian people sometimes saying, be good to your friends because you never know when you'll need them, right? Or that famous song, lean on me because it won't be long till I'm going to need a, need a friend or whatever, lean on you sort of thing. Um, but, you know, that's a transactional friendship. That's a transactional love for others. It's not a Christian love for others, you know. The Christian love would be lean on me because you need to lean on me, full stop. It's not about me needing to lean on you tomorrow. Right, Christian love expects nothing in return. That's the example of Jesus. All right, and, and you know, it's, it's, um, I think it's important also to note here that this is the love of Jesus that drives Christians, that drives us to love the world. And this is the love that has made real change in the world for good in so many ways. And um, if you look at the Western world, the greatest movements for social justice that have brought tangible change that has lasted have been driven and spearheaded by Bible-believing Christians following the example of Jesus Christ. And, um, and it's very different to the social justice of today, which is based in secular philosophies. And I don't want to get political here, but I do want to draw a distinction here. You know, secular philosophy-based social justice movements are guilt-based movements, you know. For example, if there's racism, we've got to find some group of people who are guilty. And they are guilty regardless of their actions, regardless of what they've done in their life, and they are always going to be guilty. Right? It's your fault. It's your privilege. That is a secular-based social justice. It's completely at odds with God's mercy, which says people are valuable. God loves them. God created all people in the image of God, and therefore we will show the unconditional love of Christ to others and better their lives. It's a people-based, it's a needs-based love without strings attached. It's not a guilt-based drive. There's a clear distinction between the social justice of a secular world to the compassionate love of Jesus Christ. All right. So the next part of the message, I want to actually look at some of the examples, and there would be millions, literally, but some of the examples how Christians throughout the ages have brought tangible change into the lives of people by following the example of Jesus Christ. You know, loving people and having God's compassion 
because we recognize that all people are created by God. We are all descended from Adam and Eve, created on the sixth day of creation when God said, let us make man in our own image. Every human being, regardless of how they're living today, carries the image of God. Yes, it's marred by sin, but they're valuable to God. We know, as the scripture says, that Jesus Christ died for all. You know, if, if God would come down and die for someone, um, they are valuable. And it's God's value given to them that gives every person value. And so Christians have always looked after people. From the womb to natural death, People, Christians have always valued the human dignity of every single human being because God loves us and God loves every single person. So some of the examples I want to look at. Firstly, beginning with the Roman Empire. You know, during the Roman Empire, this is the time when Christians um, first came on the scene, right? Jesus uh, was there. They were initially seen as a sect of Judaism, but very quickly the Romans realized, gosh, these people are a bit different to the Jews, right? There's something more about them. And, um, and it was a heavily, we were heavily persecuted. Many emperors tried to stamp out Christianity altogether with gruesome treatment of Christians, but it didn't work. And Christianity grew and grew nonetheless despite all the persecutions until eventually Rome itself was conquered by Christianity. And so some of the things, Christians, you know, Christianity spread because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that Christians lived it out in their everyday lives, right? It didn't spread by Christian armies or Christian politicians. None of that happened in the first three centuries at all. But yet Christianity spread with such fervor because people saw the power and the love of Jesus Christ. One of the things is attending to the sick. You know, um, the, the Greek or Roman world was a world that did not see humanity the way we do. It wasn't a biblical view of humanity. It was a view where, again, it was very transactional. Some people mattered and other people didn't, you know. But, but in Christ, everyone matters because we're created in the image of God and Christ died for all. And here's a um, couple of quotes from some historians. So Jeffrey Blaney in his book, A Short History of Christianity, he writes, the spread, during the spread of epidemics, while the pagan religions rarely offered help in sickness, many Christians, especially women, were willing to nurse the sick and take food to their homes. In nursing the, sick, nursing the sick and the dying, regardless of religion, the Christians won friends and sympathizers. You know, if you were weak and frail, you had nothing to add to the Greek or Roman society, then you didn't matter. And so if an ep epidemic hit a city, those who were wealthy and rich would just leave, and the vulnerable and the sick would just be left to, to basically meet their fate. But yet the Christians said, no, they matter to God, and they would stay there at the cost of their own health, and even at the, sometimes contracting the illnesses and dying themselves, they would show the love of God to the sick pagans and the sick whoever was there. Another historian writing in the book Greek Medicine in Rome, he says, we will not forget at the same time to admire and commemorate the sublime devotion of our Christian forefathers, who in the midst of manifold and malignant pestilences did not hesitate to devote, devote their service and too often their lives to the sick. So this care for the sick out of that love of God, has been uh, um, inseparable from, him, from Christianity right from the start. Another one to talk about in the Roman world was the gladiatorial games. You know, we've all um, heard about the gladiator games, the famous movie The Gladiator and all that kind of stuff where absolute bloodbaths and cruel deaths of people for the pure entertainment of the Roman public would occur. And right from the start, you know, Christians were appalled by this, obviously, right, because the Lord tells us about the value of human life. 
and that God wants people to be saved. We are created for a purpose, and it isn't to die in some gruesome battle for entertainment, right? And so Christian bishops and pastors spoke against the gladiatorial games for centuries. Christians refused to attend the games, and, and they pressured emperors to put an end to them. And eventually it was a Christian emperor, Theodosius I, in 378 to 395, who outlawed gladiatorial contests and brought them to an end. That was in the Eastern Roman Empire. And then his son Honorius ended the, ended the games in 404 in the Western Roman Empire. And we see this was Christian activism, Christian compassion in action that brought these things to an end. Another one was infanticide. You know, killing of children in the womb and outside of the womb was rampant throughout the Greco-Roman world. They didn't care for the life of children, but the Christians did. And, um, and many kids would be abandoned. Here's a couple of quotes from historians. It says, Friedrich Ferrer has noted that infanticide was, was infa infamously universal among the Greeks and Romans during the early years of Christianity. Infants were killed for various reasons. Those born deformed or physically frail were especially prone to being willfully killed, even by drowning. Some were killed more brutally. Infant girls were especially vulnerable. It's terrible, isn't it? Someone's frail, someone's got a disability, just kill them. That was the Greco-Roman mindset. And yet Christians would abandon them to die, yet the Christians would go and look after them. They'd give off their time, their love, their resources to say, well, they matter to us and they matter to God. They might be deformed, they might be diseased, but they matter to God and we will raise them. Infanticide, said the highly regarded historian Lecky, was one of the deepest stains of the ancient civilizations. It was this moral practice that the early Christians continually opposed wherever they encountered it. Valentinian, a Christian emperor who was sufficiently influenced by Bishop Basil of Caesarea in Cappadocia, formally, formally outlawed infanticide in 374. So again, we see Christian influence there. And so the list could go on of the influence of Christians carrying the compassion in action of Jesus Christ to the world. Um, there's another quote that I want to put up here from the book, How Christianity Changed the World. It says, From the wellsprings of Christian compassion, says Carlton Hayes, our Western civilization has drawn its inspiration and its sense of duty for feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, looking after the homeless, clothing the naked, tending the sick, and visiting the prisoner. Similarly, George Grant states, as missionaries circled the globe, they established hospitals, they founded orphanages, they started rescue missions, they built almshouses, they opened soup kitchens, they incorporated charitable societies, they changed laws, they demonstrated love, they lived as if people mattered. That is Christ's compassion in action that he calls us to. And we'll leave that slide up there. One other person that I do want to mention in this specifically is William Wilberforce. How many of you familiar with his name? Yes? A towering figure in more recent Christian history. And, you know, this man was a larrikin. He was a, he was a very wealthy man, and, uh, and he was a, a party animal. And, uh, and he was studying, I think it was at Oxford, or was it Cambridge, one of the two. Smart guy, but uh, spent, he was known for keeping a big Yorkshire pie, Yorkshire pie in his, uh, in his apartment there. He was from Yorkshire, and, uh, and plenty of alcohol, right? But yet in those years... He came to know the Lord through the influence of a very um, smart professor whose name happened to be Isaac. And um, he, so, so he actually went on a tour of Europe and he wanted an interesting person to converse with as they carted throughout Europe. And he chose this professor. And, uh, and this professor was a Christian. And, and anyway, he came back from Europe and he'd become a Christian. He became a Christian and then he devoted his life and his powerful position to good causes. Now, you'll be familiar with the fact that um, 
William Wilberforce was the spearhead, the political spearhead for, for achieving the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. Um, and that was the greatest feat that he did, which is phenomenal. And I think he fought for about 22 years to see that happen. But other things you may not know is this. He was also a founder of the Bible Society. You know, him and some friends met a Welsh girl who was hungry for the word of God but didn't have it in a language. And that inspired him and his friends to get together and start a society called the Bible Society to print Bibles in the languages of local people and, and distribute them throughout the world. Another thing is he was a very strong advocate of missionary work and ending sati in India. The great missionary William Carey lived at the same time as William Wilberforce. And, um, you know, uh, for the first couple of hundred years of British influence in India, uh, the charter for running British interests in India was with the East India Company. And their only interest was money. And they had specifically outlawed missionary work. So missionaries were not allowed to go to India under the British flag. And anywhere where the British flag flew, missionaries would be actively expelled from the country. And so when William Carey went to India, um, he was very worried because the British were never going to give him a pass to be uh, a missionary. And when he got there, he didn't know what he was going to do because he actually flew under the flag of a Danish sea captain. Um, and he knew the Danish sea captain was a Christian and would allow him to get there. But he's thinking, hey, what am I going to do when the British start checking the ships there on the ports? And, but anyway, they were able to do a manoeuvre and they ended up in a small little Danish-controlled city. And that's how they established the work of William Carey and the missionaries there. But the British would have kicked them out. Right? So they, they were very hardcore against the missionaries because they knew the missionaries are not going to make money for the East India Company. They're coming to better the lives of the Indian people and bring Christianity. And if the Indian people got empowered by Christianity, that'd be trouble for the East India Company. And so this happened. So when the, when the charter of the East India Company came up for renewal in 1813, William Wilberforce was actually a very strong advocate in Parliament to say we, that it, he said it's actually a great scourge that we don't allow missionaries to India. We must force the company to let missionaries in. And he was successful. And they, then many missionaries were able to go um, and better the lives of Indian people. And one of the things that um, amongst education and feeding people and uh, educating, bringing the printing press and other things, one of the things that William Carey had been devastated by seeing in India was the practice of sati. And if any of you are familiar, that was a Hindu custom where if a man died, they'd burn his body and as the flames were burning, the living wife would have to jump into the flames and be burned to death. Um, and the kids were probably watching. So disgusting, right? Terrible stuff. And so William Carey had been lobbying the governor generals of India over there to put an end to it and they wouldn't listen to him. But after many years of William Carey's lobbying and also William Wilberforce's lobbying from England in 1829, the Governor-General at that time, Lord William Cavendish Bentinck, abolished the practice of sati. So we see these tangible things. Other things you may not know about William Wilberforce, you know, in, in Proverbs it says that a righteous man cares for the life of his beast, for animals, and yet the kindnesses of the wicked are cruel. The RSPCA, William Wilberforce was a founding uh, member, father of the RSPCA. He founded it with his friends. He also advocated strongly for prison reform and also for working conditions for chimney boys. They used to get little boys as young as five and six and eight and nine to climb up in these chimneys of uh, factories and clean out all the soot in that. They spend hours and hours, maybe 10, 12 hours a day doing that. Imagine what happened to their lungs and their early deaths. He said, this is unacceptable, and he stood against that. And the list could go on. And, and many other people we could mention, William Carey, David Livingston, modern-day missionaries, Wayne Check, and others, who give off their lives 
not to gain anything for themselves. Right? William, Car- William Wilberforce was a very wealthy man. He could have just partied till he died, had no worries. But he actually gave away most of his wealth. He lived for a purpose because he was transformed by the compassion of Jesus Christ. And that's what God calls us to do. We live in a blessed country, and that's a wonderful thing. And let's use the influence and the wealth and whatever God has put in our hands, small or great, to show the compassion of Jesus to others in need. You know, and we, we can start that today. We can start that tomorrow, right? Reaching out to our friends and neighbours, making a meal for them, visiting the sick, um, you know, in our workplaces, talking to someone that others don't talk to, you know, making time to have a conversation with someone and, and to meet their needs and letting them know that you're a Christian, you know, and sharing the love of God with people. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. So finally, I want to come to uh, the last part of the message, which is how do we foster this disposition of mercy and compassion as Jesus had? So a few points. Firstly, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that word looking uh, denotes sort of fixing your eyes upon, keep looking at Jesus. And, uh, you know, what you put your eyes on, the people we make as our role models are the people we're going to become like. And, uh, and I think this is so important that we just keep our eyes on Jesus, call to mind every day the compassionate love of Jesus for people. How did he minister to people? What would he do? I remember being challenged by this a lot when, um, when I was uh, finishing uni and starting work with the Brisbane City Council in the Fortitude Valley in my first workplace. And, um, and we were doing a lot of work for the homeless, um, you know, on the weekends and that. But I'd get off the bus in Brunswick Street and walk into the mall there. And quite often as I'd got between the bus and, and, and the office were homeless people just lying, you know, on the, um, on the benches or concrete and whatever. And, and I felt challenged, uh, you know, many times by God to say, if they made eye contact or whatever, to what am I going to do about that? Am I just going to rush to work? Because I do have work to get to, of course. Um, but so many times, you know, God would just compel me, hey, show this person human dignity now, you know, and don't wait for the weekend. And so I just stop, say, hey, how are you going? Have you had breakfast yet? And, um, and we just go together, I'd sit down with them at Macca's, buy them a meal, pray with them, tell them Jesus loves them, and then go off to work, you know. But, but it's little things like that, that, you know, just taking time to do it. Because thinking, how would Jesus see this person right now? Yes, they literally, they smell. You know, literally, they haven't washed their hands. Literally, I've got somewhere to be. But what would Jesus do right now? All right, what would Jesus do? All right, the second one is maintain a biblical view of the value of people. There is no religion, no philosophy, no good intent that values people like God does because he made people. Right? Everything else is transactional in some way. What can I get? How can I feel good about helping people? But in the Bible, we understand the true value of people. And there's so much we could talk on this, but two scriptures I want to read on this is Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. People carry the image of God, the creator of the universe. Now, that's special. That sets us aside from the animals. We are not part of the animal kingdom. We are created in the image of God. Animals are great, but man is far above that. But we carry the image of God, and we are to view every human being as such. Yes, that image is tainted by sin, and people need Christ. Without Christ, there's an eternity without God, and that's a tragedy. 
and, and it leads us to more compassion for people. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus Christ came to earth and he died to pay for the sins of every single human being. You know, all of us have sinned, good people, bad people, people of all races, colors, creeds. We have all sinned. We've broken God's law. And it's not a lack of good works or social justice or anything that keeps us away from God. It's the presence of sin. And our sin has been paid for because God himself took the sin on himself and he died for it. An infinite man dying for an infinite volume of sin. Right? Jesus died for our sins. And if Jesus loved the people we're looking at, the people who annoy us, the people who in the natural we have no reason to care about, if Jesus would die for them, then he calls us to love them and to reach out to them with his truth, with his gospel and with his compassionate love. The next point is uh, trusting in God's faithfulness and his vindication. You know, taking a posture of mercy and compassion can in certain circumstances make us vulnerable. You know, can this person I'm showing compassion to right now override me? Can they... Uh, you know, uh, uh, do me harm because I'm taking a humble posture. Well, let's do it anyway, right? Because God will vindicate us. God will be faithful. And now I'm not talking about doing stupid things and putting your, you know, health and safety at risk and all of that. But, but you know, showing kindness to someone, giving a leg up to someone who's trying to tear you down. Um, let's do it anyway. God will take care of us. He will vindicate us. The next one is practice mercy and compassion. You know, let's do this practically. Lord, Asking God, Lord, what are, what's some ways today, tomorrow, that I can show your compassion in action to others and do to the glory of God? Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us, good, let us do good to everyone, and especially, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. God calls Christians to do good to everyone, right? and especially those who are believers. Amen. Uh, the next one I have here is remain in him. You know, kindness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when a tree is growing, if it's in the right soil, if it's the right kind of tree, in the right environment, it's going to grow fruit. That's just going to happen. And if we remain in the Lord, walking in the Holy Spirit, then we will be kind. That's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. One more point I want to make just before concluding is that we are to have our compassion with an eternal perspective. You know, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, um, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And... Um, it's interesting in today's uh, day, you know, loving our neighbour has been redefined by the world to meaning that we have to advocate for and wave the flag of everything our neighbour stands for. But we don't, right? It's not, we can't endorse things that are a spit in God's face, right? We have to love God and love man at the same time. So if something is contrary, you know, we can't love our neighbour to hell. We have to love our neighbour to Christ. And, um, and I just want to give one example of this. Um, 
when we were doing uh, many years ago, myself and a number of friends were doing outreach in the Fortitude Valley. There was a young man, an Indian man, who um, saw us going around. We just pray. We weren't, you know, hollering on street corners or anything. We just walk and pray and talk to people and you know, buy meals, take them home if they were, you know, been abandoned by friends or whatever, and share the gospel with them. And if they were interested, we'd give them a Bible, pray for lots of people. Um, and that was till like two or three in the morning on a Sunday, and then we'd come to church by nine o'clock. Usually, I was about quarter past nine, which is a bit naughty. But, um, but anyway. Um, this guy, this Indian guy, he had a Sikh uh, turban on his head and beer bottles in his hand and in a couple of bags, he'd just follow us around. And he thought we were pretty cool. And so yeah, week after week, he'd, he'd hang out with us. And um, then after a while, um, you know, he liked us. And so he said, uh, Isaac, I want to become a Christian. I said, that's awesome. You know, that, that's really good. That's fantastic, you know. And he'd seen us praying. He'd joined us for prayer and all of that. And I said, but you know, Harry, you've got to, um, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to let go of your Sikh gods. He had all the Sikh stuff on him. And I said, you know, Jesus loves you and he is the truth, but you can't be a Sikh and a Christian. You have to let go of your Sikh gurus and their teachings and you have to follow Jesus. And he thought about that and um, he decided not to become a Christian at that time. But we continued to love him and he still hung out with us. And then he went away for work for a few weeks. And, um, and in that time, God had been ministering to him through different ways. Then we were in the valley one time starting the night, just having a coffee at Gloria Jeans. And here comes Harry. He walked through the doors, absolutely beaming. And he said, Isaac, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I said, mate, that is awesome. I said, but you know, you can't be a Sikh and a Christian. You've got to let go of Sikhism. And he said, I know all of that. I'm going to do it. Right? And from that day to today, I, um, he follows Jesus. You know, he married a Christian girl. He's walking with Jesus Christ. But it, yeah, praise God. Praise God. Um, I had the honor of baptizing him at the beach up the coast. And it, it was just awesome. You know, the open air baptism is fantastic. So, but, um, but just a small example of the fact that Eternity is real. There are eternal consequences for the lifestyles and the belief system we marry ourselves to. And we need to love people unconditionally. We'll give our lives for someone we don't agree with. That's the love of Jesus Christ. We will love our enemies. But let's also love them eternally and speak to the truth to people because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So... I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give an opportunity for a response to Jesus. Yeah, please, uh, if the worship band could come up. Um, you know, God is a God of compassion, so much so that while he hates sin and there is an eternity, uh, you know, with or without God, God wants every human being, regardless of what they've done, the most terrible, most vile sinner and person that you can, we can think of and imagine, Jesus Christ, God became man. He died for that person's sin. God loves them. We might be repulsed by them. Or, or hate certain things that people have done. You think about mass murderers and rapists and all this. It's disgusting stuff. But you know what? Jesus even loves them. And he loves good people as well. He loved the rich young, young ruler. He loves every person. And Jesus Christ has died for us all to take away our sins. And if we put our faith in him for salvation, we will be saved. We receive the mercy of God. And he's calling out. As we read earlier, I just want to read that again in Isaiah 30. Um, let me find that. The Lord says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. And if you are here today and you haven't um, ever put your faith in Jesus Christ, haven't received that mercy of God to receive forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ, I'm, I am going to give a chance after I pray to, to respond to that. And if, you, if that is you, I'm going to ask you at the end of the service to please just raise your hand and, and come out the front. And I'd love to just talk with you down here as the service closes and pray with you. But uh, let me just close in prayer. And then uh, Jason will take over with, that, with the worship song. 
Lord, we just thank you that you are a God of compassion, Lord, and your love is boundless towards us. And it's not just a love of theory or philosophy, but it's compassion in action. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your example. Give us all grace, Lord, as your followers to carry your compassionate, your compassion, your love, your, your, um, your boundless love with no strings attached to the world, expecting nothing in return, Lord, so that people's lives will be bettered. Lord, they will see the love of Jesus, the face of Jesus, and that people will be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.